Hey, it's Francis. And you know, our good friend Sola Eweli just became a parent. Twice. First, she had a real human baby. And then, like a month or so later, she had her book baby. Her first cookbook, Start Here. And to help her celebrate, we're bringing back an episode where she and her husband, Ham, took on some cooking questions and told the absolutely bonkers story of how they cooked for their own wedding. And... Since it's time to start thinking about hosting for the holidays, we have restaurateur Will Gadara on how being a great host can be life-changing. Check it out. I'm Francis Lamb, and you're listening to The Splendid Table from APM. So, what's the secret to a good relationship? All right, you didn't come here for romantic advice, but I do think they're pretty universal answers. One is to really listen to each other, and the other is to make each other laugh. Later in the show, we'll be talking with Will Gadara, who was a co-owner and led the service of Eleven Madison Park, which was once voted the best restaurant in the world. He has a new book called Unreasonable Hospitality, and we'll talk about how you can be a better host and really a better person by taking some cues from great restaurant service. And first, we have the married duo of chefs Sola and Ham Elwaley. For years, Sola has been an internet cooking video star, showing off her pastry, savory, and nerdetry skills in video series about everything from killer pies and food science to recreating recipes unearthed from ancient history. And her husband, Ham, kept up his career helping to run fine dining kitchens. But recently, they've teamed up to make videos together, including a series for the New York Times called Mystery Menu, and they just crack each other up all the time. We've got them answering your cooking questions and joining us now. Hey, Sola. Hey, Ham. It's great to see you both. Hey, Francis. How's it going? Hey, how's it going? I am so great. I'm actually really walking on air because I got to have a conversation with your buddy, Will Gadara. And, you know, he always makes everyone feel so amazing. And, you know, it's all about intentional listening and paying attention to your relationships. And it actually got me thinking... Because, Ham, you were on our sister podcast, The One Recipe, Shameless Plug. And on that podcast, you were talking about how, you know, the two of you working together is just so much fun for you both. But, you know, as someone who, uh, you know, I, I love my wife very much. I've never had to work with her. I kind of have to imagine, like, you're living with the person, you're, you're spending your life with the person, but you're working with the person. It can't always be fun, right? So how do you manage, like, all the tough parts of working with each other? Ooh. Communication, I think, is is key. Like, we've always worked together, even when we weren't married. So mm. that kind of laid the foundation for our entire relationship. We're, we're, when we met in the CIA, we were in every class together and kind of just like, oh, look at these brown kids. Let's, like, lump them together. And so we were, <laughs> we were initially lumped t- together often. And then that lumping turned into a very real love. <laughs> that, that's that's the most romantic thing I've ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was mad about it in the beginning because it was like, oh, we're the only two brown people here, so you think we should be friends? And then they were right. <laughs> <laughs> From a lump to love. From a lump to love. But then, so tell me, so like, as you worked, and you worked together in lots of different ways, right? You owned a restaurant together. Like, you came up in culinary school together, and you worked in restaurants. And then you actually owned a restaurant together. Mm-hmm. And then Sola, you went into you know your fabulous food media career, and Ham, you continued working in restaurants, and now you make videos together for us all to see. So, like, well, tell us what's fun about it, but then also tell us like how you actually manage that. Well, I guess we both work really differently. Um, 
Mm. I do everything like in my head first and in notebooks first. And Ham is someone who does stuff like, like he can't work on a dish until food is in front of him. Mm-hmm. So I guess in the beginning, the first thing to overcome was understanding how each other's brains worked. Mm. And it, I also think the fact that we think differently is a, is like a benefit. Like I'm the planner. I love the spreadsheets. I, I love drawing pictures and making lists and then Ham's like the execution. So like together, we're like a really solid team. We have all of our bases covered. But okay, but so you have this New York Times video series you do together that is kind of not really, I mean, unless you're going to reveal the, the, the magic behind the curtain. But as far as I can tell, it's, it's about you two being surprised. Like, uh-huh. oh, yes. make a meal with this. So you really can't plan for it. And now you're improving. So how do you like, how do you learn to dance together? If you have such different styles, especially. Well, when we see the ingredient, it's, it's exactly like it seems. We see the ingredient, it's a surprise, and then we get one hour. But before we get into it, we make like a very, very thorough, detailed game plan. And then we communicate the whole time while we're cooking to see where we are within our game plan. Yeah, constantly checking where each other's at. And the, in the kitchen, like whether you're doing an hour competition show or setting up a restaurant or, or cooking Thanksgiving dinner, that plan portion is the most important part, that, that game plan. So you, know, so you know exactly where you want to end up and how you're going to get there. So that's with that show specifically, the game plan is the key to, to the whole process. And it's why it seems like we can get so much done in a short amount of time is because we know that this is going to take five minutes. And while that's going, we can do this and then we can do that. The, the game plan is paramount to any kind of cooking project endeavor. The one time we didn't have a game plan was when we were making our wedding cake. And that was a struggle. No, we had a game plan. <laughs> we, we did later. We didn't initially start with a game plan. We, we were just kind of, we made a bunch of different cakes and tasted them and, and put them with different fillings. And then we came up with a game plan. And then the rest of the process was pretty smooth. Well, that was the first time we did something like really big together. Mm-hmm. It was a six tier wedding cake for like 300 people. It was our first oh, wedding cake ever, and we <laughs> just got and out of culinary own. school. Well, yeah, but also we like oh, did God. not know how to do that much cake. So <laughs> we started early, and we just made like cake after cake after cake after cake yeah. to like figure out the recipe. And then we did our own like tasting where we made like multiple cakes and stacked them in different ways and like tasted them. So it was like a lot of chaos in the beginning, but then once we like nailed down our recipe, uh, it was pretty smooth. Until the yeah. decoration part, which we were like, oh, this is easy, right? And it's not. Nope. <laughs> not easy at all. <laughs> then we went, it kind of slid back into chaos. But it was very fun. It was a great experience. It was a good, it was a good like relationship test right before you get married. Because we also like stayed awake three nights before the wedding because <laughs> we this were sounds... just baking cakes, building cakes. So we had, we were on no sleep and, um, and things turned out okay. So the fact that you made it through and actually got to the wedding and then decided to both say, Yeah, I do, really I think it, says it, something. That was a really good, really good test right yeah. before the weddings. Like, can you make it through this? Well, I feel like it was a really good metaphor for marriage because like we had so many ups and downs. Like when we did finally eventually get the six layers of cake and each layer was like eight inches tall, we wanted to put like a shiny chocolate glaze over it, um, which is 
traditionally made with gelatin, but our family is Muslim. So we thought we could just, you know, eyeball it with agar. And we invited mm-hmm. everyone, like the whole family was there. So we're like, everyone come into the kitchen. We're going to pour on the chocolate glaze. And then we poured it on and then like everything just melted and slid right off. And then there was just like a waterfall of chocolate on the kitchen floor. <laughs> Beautiful. That was stunning <laughs> moment. No one had ever seen anything like that before. Yep. Yeah. Just so everyone then, was very well, concerned. Yeah, we got really sad. And then, but like, just like in life, we talked about it. We regrouped, we came up with a better plan got the decorations done. It was pretty good. And then Ham transported it. And then there was a surprise tropical storm. Oh, God. Yeah, so our wedding was at, like, the peak of this cliff. So there was a winding road that you had to take to get to the top. So there was torrential downpour. I was in the back of a van literally cradling the cake, uh, <laughs> trying, to, trying to protect it from every bump in the road. Um, I ended up taking my suit jacket off to cover the cake as I carried it into the place. Um, we had to touch it back up when, when we got it was it was very stressful, but it was so stressful that the actual wedding was so easy and so stress free that it was like, oh, this is nothing because we made this giant cake and then transported it in this tropical storm. Up a yeah, hill. Because we already got past the moment where I wrapped the wedding cake in my wedding suit. <laughs> in my wedding suit. <laughs> yeah, and we was, made it uh, this far. That was fun. The cake got eaten. Oh. It was a good cake. People liked it. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, that is fantastic. And here you are, load this many years later. So we do have lots of folks who called in with questions for you. Um, so let's get to them. Hi, Solon Ham. My mom, my sister, and I are big fans of yours from the Philippines. Oh, Our question is, how long does your dry brining chicken last in the fridge? We watched your fridge tour video and saw that Ham left something brining. And my mom <laughs> left a spatchcock chicken to dry brine for around four or five days. And it ended up being tasty, but a little bit weird. Please give us some suggestions. Thanks. <laughs> oh, oh my God, I love this. So cute. I oh love this man, person. That's amazing. I understand what she means by tasty but weird. Yep. A ham usually covers this. You're the protein person. Yes, there is. I feel like there's a window when the dry brine morphs from dry brining and into more of a cure. So I know exactly what you mean by tasty but weird. It tastes almost like a processed ham. Um, because mm, okay. it, it, it draws out too much moisture and then the meat starts curing. So depending on the size of what you're looking to brine. So if you're doing a whole chicken, um, I would not dry brine it for longer than 48 hours because then you're just going to start going into more of a cured meat territory. Um, if you're mm, doing okay. parts, I would keep it from 12 to 24. Like essentially the larger the piece of protein that you're brining, the longer it takes, but I would rarely go past 48 hours just because you're, you're just going into a different territory at that point. If you're looking, if you're looking to cure something, go for it. But if you're looking for dry brine where you're looking for a nice dry, uh, tacky exterior and a really nice moist interior, you want to keep that on, on the 48 hour if it's a large piece of protein and 12 to 24 if it's a smaller piece of chicken, pork or beef. If you're doing fish, that's even less time. I would do three hours up to 12 
and really nothing okay. nothing past that. Shrimp and scallop that's really small also benefit from a dry brine, but I wouldn't go longer than an hour on those things because then you're, they're going to start to get tasty, but maybe a little tough. Well, and for, <laughs> Taste be weird. Yeah. <laughs> and for anyone who's not uh, familiar with dry brine, it's just like all you do is pat down your protein, evenly sprinkle it with salt, and then you could add some spices in there, but make sure it's not more than... Uh, half the volume of the salt because it can affect the way the salt is absorbed. And then you pop it mm-hmm. on a wire rack set in a sheet tray and let it sit in your fridge uncovered. And mm-hmm. then the salt will dissolve from the meat uh, juices, get drawn in and like tenderize the meat, dry out the skin so it crisps really well and also help the fat render. But like if you are trying to cure, you need to have a curing salt in there. Otherwise, if you have your meat for more than a week, it might start to go bad. So your mom was like right on the edge, living yeah. dangerously. <laughs> really, really pushing it. Um, and the curing salt also helps give it a pinkish hue so it doesn't uh, look super oxidized when you cook it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is why like when you buy like ham, like supermarket ham, why that meat mm-hmm. is actually pink. It's It's pink, yeah. Because of the, that curing salt usually. Yeah. Right but on. that's happened to us like a ton of times. It just happened last week where we dry brine chicken thighs, didn't have time to cook it. It was in there for five days. Yeah. But like in that case, we just went with a moist cooking method so it doesn't have too much of that cured texture, but it's perfectly safe. Yeah, it, it's mm-hmm. safe. It just the texture might not be great. And that's a great point, Sola. Like if, if you do over brine your meat, cooking it in a moist environment to reintroduce some liquid into the protein is definitely going to help. Like do, doing, or... doing a braise instead of a sear. Don't go anywhere because we'll be back to answer more of your questions with Sola and Ham Awaley, host of the show Mystery Menu from New York Times Cooking. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. We're talking with chefs and YouTube stars Sola and Ham El Whaley. We're taking your cooking questions. Let's get back to it with them. Okay, let's go to our next caller, and this is Amy. Hi, Sola and Ham. My question is one my friends and I have been debating for years. If you could only use one bean, either black bean or chickpeas, for the rest of your life, which one would you choose and why? One bean? First of all, I love that Amy and her friends have been debating this for years. (laughs) Yeah, for years. Like, Remember back in 1999, I said chickpeas, guys. Let's get out the minutes from the last meeting. I've changed. This is a friend group I think I would fit in. Well, yeah, this is a great friend group. I love it. Discussing black beans and chickpeas. And I like how specific they were. It's not just any beans. Don't pick your favorite bean. It's black bean or chickpea. So which team are you on? That's tough because I have close, like, personal ties to both beans. Like, I grew up eating a lot of both in, in different applications. Like, in, in the Middle Eastern side of me, loves chickpeas because it's such a core component of of a lot of dishes but the like south american slash like brazilian a lot side kind of really likes the black beans <laughs> in feijoadas and i grew up eating a lot of different variations of feijoada so so that's 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 very tough what's great is that they're both super versatile they're really good for you um this hmm. question is tearing you apart. 
It is. It, it's like it, it's. I feel like they're asking me which 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 uh, part of the world I yeah, like. Yeah. More. No, which, you have to pick your favorite parent. Here. Yeah, exactly. Which parent? Do you, yeah. <laughs> which parent do you? Who do you love yeah. more, your which mom parent, or your dad? Which, which, <laughs> yeah, that's. It's it's really tough. Um, I will have to say on 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 a day to day basis, if I am gonna reach for one of those, I'm reaching for black beans. I agree. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the nice thing to know here is that, like Amy, if she and her friends have been debating this for years, they probably do go back and forth. So you don't <laughs> actually have to be committed only to one side or the other. But Sola, what do you, what would you say? Are you team black bean or are you team chickpea? I'm fully committed to the black bean. Oh, fully committed. I... Well, no, no debate. No, no debate. With Just authority. straight black bean. Yeah, straight black bean. I, for me, chickpeas are like just like a very specific thing. I don't even think of them as beans. Like, it's a chickpea. I only want it for, like, chana masala. Is that the dog? (laughs) The dog's playing behind him. Sorry. Uh, Yeah, chickpea for me is very specific. I only want it in chana masala or hummus. And those are two things that I rarely eat. Really? Yeah. We're not hummus people. We're baba ganoush all the way. Or matabal, yeah, matabal uh-huh. or baba ganoush all the way. Uh huh. <laughs> but black bean, I, you could refry it. It's great in the soup. You can do like a like a, a shakshuka kind of thing, or like a chilaquiles kind of thing. I feel like you can have a lot more fun with a black bean dip. Whoa, black bean dip. So you Solid you say choice. that there's more versatility in the black bean than the chickpea? Is is your is your debate? I think so because I feel like it is creamier as well. Hmm. I, I, I do agree that it is, it is creamier. It's also like, I feel like it's easier, it's easier to cook. It's just like an easy, easy thing to, cause if you're for a lot of things, the chickpea, uh, like, especially a dried chickpea, I feel like it takes a lot longer. If you want to make something really good, like a hummus or something, you need to peel it there. There's a lot of mm-hmm. work involved with getting a chickpea from, from good to unforgettable. But black beans are there, like already. Always unforgettable. Black beans are unforgettable. Yeah. <laughs> Noted, Ham. No, your family is noting this. Uh, can I say something completely sacrilegious? Go for it. Uh huh. I think they're the same thing. Let me take the back. I what? don't think they're actually the same thing, but I kind of feel like all dried beans are fungible. Are interchangeable. Sort of. I mean, I love them all. So that's, mm-hmm. this is the space I'm coming from. Not like, oh, I don't care about them, so they're all the same. It's like, no, I love them all. So I'm like, I would totally puree a chickpea just like I would totally puree a black bean. I would stew a chickpea just like I would stew a black bean. And they all have their own flavors, for sure. They all have their own unique characteristics. Uh, they all have what makes them special. But I kind of feel like it's super fun to do... I don't know. Like, why wouldn't I make a a hummus type of dip with a black bean? Like, that sounds like that'd be you really can. good. Why wouldn't you can? I... And we have, mm-hmm. and it's delicious. Yeah, right. So I kind of feel like so that's a that's a good. It's point. all good stuff. And I just like I love beans. And again, they are unique in the sense that they have their own flavor and texture and and shape and and all that stuff. But I kind of feel like when you again in the comfort of my own home, I would never do this. Like you know, to a Colombian and be like, hey, eat this. <laughs> you, you know, eat, eat, I just made your beans with whatever beans I had lying around. I'm sure it's the same to you, right? Like, I would never do that. But I kind of feel like um, cooking beans 
in one traditional manner or another, but swapping the kind of bean you use is always a little bit fun. Like it changes the flavor a little bit, it changes the texture a little bit, and I don't know. I just kind of feel like I love them all. Why not? Okay, I agree I, with you with all beans except chickpeas. <laughs> because I feel like... Chickpeas feel like is very distinct. It has it, like a, They're pointy. <laughs> I, I feel like chickpeas, chickpea has a vibe. There's uh-huh. a chickpea vibe that all other beans don't have. And it tends to be a little, a little heavier, a little heavier, a little starchier. I, I feel like there's a chickpea, there, there's a chickpea vibe you get that you don't get with other beans. And, but I do have a tiebreaker for the black bean and chickpea. So I, I worked at a place where you, where we simmered black beans and then took that liquid and then cooked it all the way down until it was almost a paint. And it's this jet black paint that we painted on plates. And then it was like this edible black paint. You can't do that with chickpeas. Black beans win. You can't you paint go. with chickpeas. That's, that's the tiebreaker. Beautiful. Okay. All right. Let, let's, let's move on to Annie. This is Annie from Edmonds. And I recently started taking breakfast to work. And I'd love some ideas that aren't sweet and aren't eggs that I can prep in advance or the night before to make my mornings a little more tasty. Any ideas? Well... I don't know if this is a controversial opinion, but I believe anything is breakfast if you eat it in the morning. Sure. That counts for me. You know, like, just eat your leftovers from dinner for breakfast. That's not a helpful... uh, (laughs) Hey, Annie, thanks for your call. Just eat leftovers. (laughs) Love Sola. (laughs) Yeah, whenever we go to Veselka, like nine in the morning. I, I go for the burger. I'm going for a burger with, with cheese, maybe an egg if I'm feeling saucy. Um, no, but like a pack, a packed breakfast, I, I would like like a grain bowl. I know that like a lot mm. of people eat that for lunch, but I feel like a grain bowl is a perfect, because personally, I'm not a big breakfast eater. And when I do eat breakfast, I want Same. something yeah. that fills my stomach, but isn't too greasy or heavy. Or like, I, I'm not a big fan of like, the fried egg, pancake, bacony type type bread. That's not for me. I, I, I like a very, usually I have a, like a yogurt bowl with some cut up tomatoes, cucumbers, lettuce, maybe a soft boiled egg, some za'atar on top and some crispy fava beans. But I, I feel like a grain bowl with some yogurt and a bunch of nice veggies on top, like maybe uh, some nuts, some dried fruit. That's That's breakfast, baby. That sounds great. Well, and what's great is that you can boil a bunch of grains at the top of the week and then mm-hmm. just just with like salted water and then just change it up every day with a different dressing and different toppings um different mix mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. so you don't get bored but like yeah that sounds great to me yeah it's like cereal yeah, ex- it's like exactly cereal. yeah well, it's like savory cereal only it is literally cereal I mean, it, like is. Literally cereal. Um, it is cereal i have to say i'm not a huge porridge person particularly did not mean for that alliteration. Um, <laughs> but uh, in a lot of Chinese families, kanji is a very traditional breakfast. And interestingly enough, also like stir-fried noodles, which like, hey, Annie, if you have time, wake up in the morning and stir-fry some rice noodles with a, like little strips of ham, little strips of egg, and uh, bring a little nice chili oil to work. I'll come over and work where you work. Um, <laughs> but a kanji... Or maybe another savory kind of porridge. You can totally make, you know, the night before, cool it down, heat up in the morning, put it in a thermos, and you know you can put toppings with it, or you can, um, or you can do, or you can you can like stew like uh, little bits of uh, protein, meats, chicken, or or like uh, bring little pickles. 
um, like pickled radishes or just like little something like with savory pop, uh, sprinkle it on top and eat that. It's so good. Yeah, that's that sounds really good. What's your what's your go to kanji topping? I have to say, kanji I usually love when it's made with a stock. Um, oftentimes it's just rice and water, and you cook it. You, I mean, here's a kanji recipe: put some rice in water and boil it until it's like a porridge. Like that's it, mm-hmm. and it's like eight to one, twelve to one ratio. You know, water to rice, but. Um, sometimes you'll see it made with stocks, something like that. And I kind of like that background flavor. It's not meant to be like a, holy cow, this is like the richest chicken or the richest, you know, whatever, but has a little background flavor. Um, and then when you have something that's sort of savory like that, I like little pickles, like I said, like little pickled radishes or little pickled mustard greens or something like that. Um, some scallions, some roasted peanuts, little sliced scallions, little crushed roasted peanuts, and maybe a little chili oil on top. Um, and I always, always, always have a little drizzle of soy sauce and a shake of white pepper. Ooh, shake of white pepper. Yeah. Nice. I think it's really I, nice. I like, I like kanji with a, a thick layer of pork floss on top. That's my, <laughs> that's my favorite. Well, there you that, go. That's my favorite combo. Just, just I, I really, really like pork floss. So any, it, the kanji kind of becomes a vehicle for, for pork floss. That's awesome. I love that. God, I haven't had pork floss in so long. I was just talking to my colleague who also grew up in a, a Cantonese home. And, like we talked about like, oh, when we were kids, there was always a little jar of pork floss. It's, it's literally pork that has been cooked with salt and sugar uh, and stirred while it's cooked for so long that it like essentially totally dehydrates and it kind of candies and it kind of cures and it looks like a floss. It looks like this fluffy because um, it's all broken apart while it's been cooked. So it's like these little sort of shreddy, fluffy, um, it's almost like cotton candy, not quite, but sort of has a similar <laughs> effect. And when you eat it, it basically like becomes chewy and, you know, it, it, it's, it's such a cool texture. Um, yeah, and it's like sweet I love and it. And savory and it's, it's a really, really cool product. We should make some. All right, let's keep going. Let's go to Lee. Hi, this is Lee from Brooklyn. Uh, I've got a question about tomato paste. So a few weeks ago, I got these really beautiful tomatoes in my CSA, and I spent an afternoon cooking them down and canning them, and I've got a few jars of this beautiful paste, Mm -hmm. and I don't know what to do with it. I know I can use a tablespoon at a time as the base of a soup or stew, but that can kind of be ordinary, and I want to know what do you do with good tomato paste to make it shine? Thanks. Well, we recently okay. did the same thing. We recently did, did really? the same thing. Yeah, yeah, we did. We got some really good uh, pasting tomatoes from uh, Mountainberry Farm at the Green Market. I believe they're Cesare Casella's like tomato. I don't remember the name of them, but he brought the seeds over from Italy and then they planted them, and they are incredible for cooking down into a paste. You know, it is a totally different universe when you make your own tomato paste. Mm-hmm. the flavor is just unreal. It's so much umami. Mm-hmm. It's so sweet. So what do you do with all this tomato paste now that you have? I mean, our move is, well, the tomato paste itself is so good. It's like sweet and caramelized and savory that we usually mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. keep it very simple and put it in pasta. <laughs> like on its own, like not, not like redilute it into a tomato sauce. No, just, just like we kind of diluted a bit with pasta water, but it's still like, it's pretty much just spaghetti coated in, 
in this emulsified tomato paste water with finished with a bunch of parm. Oof. I want that for dinner now. But then, Ham, you made this green bean thing the other day that was really good yeah. with the tomatoes. Yeah, it's uh, it's called lubia bezet, and it just means like beans cooked in oil. And it's uh, mm-hmm. a lot of olive oil, the tomato paste, you fry it, you put um, whatever, like a green bean or a, or a yellow, like some kind of, of string bean or some kind of uh, fresh bean. And then you pretty much braise it in that olive oil and tomato mixture. Add a little, we like to add a little bit of, of bone broth just to give the sauce a little bit of body um, and mm-hmm. some salt. And that's really all it needs. Just, just beans braised in tomato paste and olive oil is so, so, so delicious. But you braise it enough that the beans like almost, it, it's not like the crisp, tender, style that like <laughs> the French people tell you to cook, to cook your bean. It's, it's braised. So they're really silky, really soft. They kind of just melt in your mouth. And then it, it carries the umami and the olive oil so well, cause it just soaks into that bean. It, it's one mm-hmm. of my favorite ways to have bean. Really, you can braise any vegetable in that. Like there's uh, the, there's another Egyptian dish that's similarly, it's just bamia, which is uh, um, Arabic for okra. And you just braise okra in tomato paste, olive oil, and a little bit of stock or water. And you're, you're good to go. Really a, a good tomato paste is any braised vegetables, best friend. You can braise any, any vegetable in it. Um, lots of olive oil, maybe a little stock or water. And, and that's all you need. Yeah. Oh, that sounds so good for me. Like the tomato paste. I feel like if you've gone through the trouble of making this stuff, really feature it in its concentrated form, right? Like don't re dilute it. Don't like, you know, you know, it can be a great boost to a super stew for sure. But I mean, sometimes what I'll do is I'll just take a big smear of it and like mash it into butter mm-hmm. and put that mm-hmm. on a piece of bread. And it's like, holy cow, it's the most <laughs> caramelized, sweet, intense tomato butter. You know, it's just like, oh, just to feature that flavor, maybe again, cutting it a little bit with butter or cutting it a little bit with. Um, olive oil or or maybe a smear of it straight up and putting some ricotta on the toast you know like you want you want it you want to feature that the intensity of that flavor on its own with a little bit something to kind of round it out not like necessarily put into a big pot of something else well and and also since it is so flavorful uh i feel like it's a really good thing to add to baked goods like you can make tomato Mm, biscuits substitute out yeah, take out some of your buttermilk and a little bit of your butter and add that tomato paste into there and make like really savory tomato biscuits. Or you could do the same thing with like a tomato focaccia or a tomato bread. Oh, you know what would be really good? You know how everyone's doing the like naturally leavened bread in the Dutch oven? Do that with some tomatoes and fold in some olives and you'll have like a really savory bread. Because the homemade tomato paste is just like undescribably delicious. It really is. Yeah. I was wondering, like thinking about what you mentioned, would it be possible, like if you're making a laminated flatbread, like a paratha or a scallion pancake, could you spread a little bit of oh, that tomato paste like yeah. and before the roll? So it's kind of laminated with tomato uh-huh. paste. Ooh, that yeah, sounds good. like flaky tomato parathas. Oof, man. Oh, God. Yeah, that sounds really That good. ambulance you hear outside is coming for me right now because I just died. Because <laughs> that is an incredible idea. All right. Well, thank you so much, Zola and Ham. This was such a blast. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. This was, this was really fun. 
Sola and Ham Awaley are the hosts of the New York Times cooking show Mystery Menu. And we love them so much, they were both guests at different times on our sister podcast, The One Recipe. You can find recipes for Sola's Spanish tortilla and Ham's garlic sauce, tomb at theonerecipe.org. Coming up, some thoughts about being a great host in your home and in your life with Will Gadara, author of Unreasonable Hospitality. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. For decades now, I have admired and studied chefs who have, you know, really with no exaggeration, changed the way millions of people eat. And... You know, we laud chefs for their creativity, their innovation, their new cooking techniques they come up with. But it's pretty unusual to come across someone who's innovative in the other side of a restaurant, in the art of service. Will Gadara is one of those rare people. And before we even get into what it means to have, you know, creative new ideas in service, you should know it all comes back to the oldest part of service. How to be a kinder, more present, or generous person. Will's just written a book called Unreasonable Hospitality, The Remarkable Power of Giving People More Than They Expect. Hey, Will, it's great to see you. Hey, Francis. Thank you for having me. I am thrilled to have you. It's been a little minute. Yeah. And, you know, lots have changed, including the fact that you wrote this book. So actually, let's start with the title, Unreasonable Hospitality. So what does unreasonable hospitality mean to you? For me, unreasonable hospitality is... I mean, listen, like that, that word can have a negative connotation right, depending yeah. on what it's being directed towards, right? And, and sure. I believe when you look across disciplines, people are celebrated for being unreasonable in their pursuit of something. Directors, mm, okay. athletes, designers, creators, all of that. And it's almost always in pursuit of creating a product. And for me, unreasonable hospitality is being just as unreasonable, just as intentional, just as disciplined, just as willing to do whatever it takes, but in pursuit of how you make other people feel. Hmm. So in the restaurant experience, like we talk about the industry of hospitality, and that normally pertains to restaurants and hotels. And kind of one of the things I'm trying to assert in this book is that Actually, people from almost every business can make the choice to be in the hospitality industry if they start to prioritize mm-hmm. the kind of things we're talking about today. But obviously, my experience is in restaurants. And so what that means is being so present and attentive with the people that you're serving that you can pick up on the little cues, the things they're saying, the things they're not saying, even the things that they're feeling, such that you can take the experience and contour it, evolve it, tweak it in a way that it's very, very specific to them. Okay. That you can come up with these gestures, these over-the-top, singular, personal, one-size-fits-one gestures that makes the person leaving, sure, having appreciated the service and loved the food and been enchanted by the ambiance, but but having felt a very, very sincere sense of connection with the people that work in that restaurant and honestly, a more profound sense of connection with the people they dined with. Mm. I believe, and Mm -hmm. I'll say this one last line, I think unreasonable hospitality is how you take an ordinary transaction and you turn it into a really memorable experience. Sure. 
Um, I think back to the experiences I've had in, in the restaurant that you're most famous for, Eleven Madison Park. And one of the most famous features of the restaurant was the welcome. Hmm. Any guest who came into that restaurant, right? They didn't walk in and see a host stand where someone's looking at a computer and ask, oh, oh, what's your name? Do you have a reservation tonight? You had made it so when a guest walks into that restaurant, someone would be standing there and would actually greet them by name as they walked in. Yeah. And everyone who goes there for the first time like, would blow their minds. Hmm. Right? And, then, and so I read in the book, you talking about how you came to that idea. It was that you were inspired not by the restaurant experience, but by the experience of going to someone's home. But how do you do the things that you do? Like how, how do we learn from that and, and, and take some of these things home and do these things at home? Hmm. Like, I love that question. And I think there's so many ways. Because here's, th- this is what we were trying to do in the restaurant. We were trying to be incredibly intentional and build systems to replicate the feeling that happens when you go to someone's house for, for dinner. Almost, we were trying to put intention to intuition to like mm-hmm. intentionally replicate things that happen organically in that other environment. And I think the way you reverse it is to be more intentional in your home, the same way that restaurants are in the experiences we create. So, you know, in restaurants, we are very, very intentional about creating the conditions wherein people can connect. And you take that down to as many details as you have the capacity to pursue. And so when you go to a restaurant, a great restaurant, at at the very least, a great restaurant, you can be sure that they've obsessed over every song on the playlist. You can be sure that they are very, very mindful over the exact setting of the lights. You can be sure that when you sit down, the person's going to come over and greet you and they're going to do it with warmth and graciousness. They're going to have thought about the way that they do it, all of that stuff, right? And so, like when you walk away from the Madison Park and you take a, your little goodie bag, the fact that it's granola is not just because on a whim we were like, let's serve granola. It's because we wanted to elicit a certain emotion with the thing we gave you. An example of that is we wanted the final grace note to be one that was humble and delicious Mm-hmm. That would offset the formality of the experience that came before it. And mm-hmm. so, okay. like That's the cool. things that jump to my mind are, A, remember, like, all those details exist in your home, right? Like, mm-hmm. what are the lights set at? What is the music? All of that stuff. But, but the most important thing, because different people think through these things in different ways, is to remember what is the reason that you're inviting people to your place to begin with. And for me, the only reason I invite people to my home is when I'm ready to pursue that relationship further, when I want to engage in more of a connection with them. One of the things that I always think is interesting is when I go to someone's house and they're so busy trying to impress me with the food that they're making for dinner that night that they come over and they hastily open the door and they say, hey, come on in. There's a bottle of champagne on the table. Pour yourself a glass. I'm going to be in the kitchen for the next hour. I'm like, wait, what are we doing? Like, that's <laughs> oh my, like, <laughs> that's totally me. That that has been me anyway. Yeah, usually because I'm just behind. But <laughs> <laughs> but then, like, you're not inviting me over to your house to impress me, or at least you shouldn't be. And I'm not going to your house to be impressed. If I was going to try to be impressed, I'm going to go to a restaurant. I'm sorry. I'm sure you're a good cook, but <laughs> I'm I'm going to your house because I want to deepen my relationship with you. And so 
when I say being intentional and systemized, like make sure mm-hmm. that when I walk through the door, you're in a place that we can actually spend time together. Decide where we're going to sit down. Like in a restaurant, you don't just randomly get moved around. Like if, if I want your meal to begin in the lounge, it begins in the lounge and it does for a reason because I believe there's a comfort to letting go of the craziness of life and like easing into the dining experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what does a memorable home meal feel like for you? I mean, what, what has impressed me in the past is when people, if they're trying to impress me at all, it's trying to impress me by showing how much they care about me. So I'll give you an example. There's a guy named Terry Coughlin, um, who I worked with at Union Square Hospitality Group, Danny Meyer's company for years. He was the general manager of Tabla in the early years that I was the general manager at 11 Madison Park. And he had a house in the Berkshires for a long time. And um, after my wife and I got our house in the country, they invited us over to their place and we spent the night with them. And man, it was just one of the most special nights because we went over and he had created something delicious, but he'd done it ahead of time. The moment we walked in, the overwhelming sense I got from him was that he was just really excited to spend time with me. Time is our most precious resource. I had chosen to pursue a relationship with him by giving time to him. And he reciprocated that by being really intentional with the time he spent with me. But then, mm-hmm. you know, we talk about dream weaving all the time in the restaurant about like going above and beyond and doing things that are really, really cool for people. He did that for us. So the morning after the dinner, when my wife and I woke up outside of our door were these two like flannel patterned thermos mugs full of our coffee in his house, right? I mean, he was treating it like a hotel, but it was really, really sweet with a little (laughs) note that said, good morning. Everyone that owns a house in the country and needs a great thermos, these are for you. Um, Enjoy your coffee. Come down when you're ready. That's awesome. And a lot of restaurants, when you leave, they give you a little goodie bag. Um, And he had made a goodie bag. He did his best to replicate the 11 Madison Park granola, but he did it with a spin of his own. And it was in a little jar along with the link to the playlist that he had put together. And when I was listening, it it was all of my favorite artists. He had just been so present in my conversations with him over the years that he knew the music I liked and had Hmm. spent a lot of time trying to create a night that he knew I would enjoy. And when I think back to the dinner I had with him, honestly, when I think back to most dinners I've had at friends' houses, I don't remember a single thing that I've eaten at any of those dinners. But I will never forget the way he made me feel when I was there nor will I forget those lovely little gifts, those grace notes that made me feel so seen, that gave me such a yeah. sense of belonging in his home. And to this day, he continues to be one of my closest friends, and I think those details are a part of the reason why. That's so interesting. And, you know, you mentioned dream weaving, and, like, you had people on your staff at the restaurant, at Olive Messon Park, who were like not servers, they were not cooks, they were dream weavers. Hmm. Who were they? What would they do? So the dream weaver was a position I added to the restaurant whose only responsibility was to help everyone else on the dining room team bring their ideas to life. So if a captain or a food runner overheard a table saying something or if they engaged with the table and picked up on a cue, an idea that we could turn into a gesture that would take their experience over the top, the Dreamweaver was there to bring that idea to life. And that could mean running out to the store and buying 
whatever thing we needed for that gesture or going in the back and, and making it. Um, I mean, one of my favorites, the one I like to talk about the most that happened at a Love Medicine Park is there was a family of four from Spain in the restaurant one night when the most beautiful thing happened. We looked at the kids. It was, it was parents and their two kids, and they were looking out those massive windows with wonder because it had started snowing. Mm. And we learned that it was the first time they'd seen real snow. And so the Dreamweavers somehow found a store that was still open at 8 o'clock on a Friday night selling sleds. And when the family left the restaurant, they were greeted by a chauffeur-driven SUV with the sleds in the back to take them to Central Park for a nightcap, like the kid's <laughs> first time ever sledding. Like, that's, that's beautiful. So incredible. By the way, the sleds cost, I don't know, 40 bucks total, right? Like, a lot of people hear about this kind of stuff and they think you need a huge budget to do it, and it's so unbelievably hard. I think there's a really big distinction between whether something is hard or whether you just need to try a little bit harder to pull it off. Or then there's simple ones. Like you overhear a guest talking about the fact that they went a little bit too hard in the paint drinking that night. And so you give them a hangover kit or uh, a, a guest who says in advance that his dad is more Budweiser steak and potatoes than, than champagne and, and foie gras. And so we turned our champagne cart into a Budweiser cart. You know, I love picking up on little things that someone say in conversation when they're at my home and then a week later they get like a little thank you gift for coming over referencing the thing that they mentioned all it requires is that you're present enough with them that you stop thinking about everything else you need to do and you can slow down enough to actually pay attention to the things they're saying yeah and when you care enough about someone to listen and then to do something with what you heard it's one of the most powerful gifts you can give to someone because they, they feel seen at the end of it. They feel cared for at the end of it. I feel like so often in this day and age, and I'm sure you've talked to people like this at a cocktail party, they ask you a question, and then as you're answering it, you can tell they've already moved on and started thinking about someone else or something else. And they were just asking you the question to hear themselves talk, and they have no desire to actually hear what you have to say. Sure. This is just about like being intentional in your pursuit of people, being attentive, listening, caring, and then trying to give them a gift that makes them feel seen. And by the way, the coolest thing about it is there's nothing that feels more energizing than seeing the look of complete joy on someone's face when they receive the gift that you're responsible for giving them. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Like I think, you know, we're we're heading into deep in the fall and the holidays around the corner and I think about, oh, what am I going to get my wife or, you know, what am I going to get my wife this year? And um, I started keeping a little, oh God, she's going to hear this, isn't she? (laughs) 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 But I started keeping a little note in my uh, note app on my phone of like, every once in a while she'll say something. I'm like, huh, okay. And just through the year, I just have these little notes that I keep taking of like something she mentions at one point or something that uh, I I see her like lingering over while like reading a magazine or something. I'm so glad you just said that because that was one of the things I was going to say. Anyone that does not keep a list of the things that their husband or wife or partner or whatever (laughs) is saying over the course of the year is seriously missing out on a huge opportunity for two reasons. One, like, it's the most profoundly cool gift when you give someone something that they want that they haven't mentioned in eight months, right? It, it's like the gifting equivalent it's of a best. magic trick. But yeah, it's the best. But, but two, what you're doing is you're taking thoughtfulness and you're turning it into a practice. 
Mm. Right. The best way to succeed at anything is to make it into a practice. And if you have developed, we're talking about like, how do you take the stuff from restaurants and bring it home? Systemize it. Create systems. Systems are practices. You've yeah. created a practice where once she says something, you take out your phone, you write something down, you put it away, and then come November, you check it and you act on it. Yeah. We all have practices and systems that we use in pursuit of the things we've decided are important to us. And the book is about a lot of stuff, but if it's really about anything, it's about creating systems, creating practices, being more intentional in pursuit of people, deciding that that is as important as anything else and giving it the same rigor and discipline. Yeah, I love that. These are truly words to live by. Thanks so much, Will. Thank you so much, Francis. Will Gadara is the author of Unreasonable Hospitality, the remarkable power of giving people more than they expect. And if you want to see Will on your TV and our earlier guest, Sola, they're actually going to be judges together on a new show on HBO Max called The Big Brunch. Anyway, before we sign off, let me make a suggestion. Maybe it's sort of a thought experiment more than anything else, but think about the most thoughtful thing you've done for someone else today. And let's think about... Let's do something better for them tomorrow. Have a great week. I'll talk to you next time. APM Studios are run by Chandra Kavadi, Alex Shaffert, and Joanne Griffith. Beth Perlman's our executive producer, and The Splendid Table was created by Sally Swift and Lynn Rosetto Casper. It's made every week by technical producer Jennifer Lutke, producer Erica Romero, digital producer James Napoli, and managing producer Sally Swift. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is APM Studios. Mm-hmm.